You're listening to Boss Tone Radio, Talk for Guitar, presented by BossUS.com. Hi, welcome to Boss Tone Radio. My name is Paul Hansen. When I was recently traveling, Gary Lanier from Boss caught up with legendary guitarist Johnny Marr. Check it out. Hi, I'm Gary Lanier, and today we are joined via telephone with legendary guitarist, singer, and composer Johnny Marr. Thanks for joining us, Johnny. You're welcome, Gary. Hi. Hi, Lo. Uh, Johnny, I read that your parents' record collection was an early musical inspiration for you. Uh, of those, who were your biggest influences in those days? Um, well, um, my parents used to play um, a lot of uh, 60s pop music. So in that, there was uh, the Hollies uh, were in there, which was pretty useful because um, Tony Hicks, the, the guitar player, uh, used a, a lot of uh, different techniques, you know. Um, I look, I listen back to those records now, and I, I, there, there are a lot of them that I still like. They're just really uh, very dynamic pop records. And, you know, there's a dulcimer on one, and there's a lot of 12, electric 12-string. 12 it's all very, very tight. So, uh, Guitar-arranged songs with great harmonies. So there was a real kind of vitality about that music that was good. And they were from Manchester, so they were like a local band. I was only a little kid then. And they liked, uh, there was a lot of Everly Brothers records being played, which was dead cool because uh, there was a lot of um, Jack Atkins guitar on those records and Don Everly played um, some pretty interesting riffs. So uh, I think at a very, very young age, my, you know, my ears were tuned to sort of interesting, I guess, pop guitars that were uh, somewhat unusual and quirky. So that was a what started me out from my parents' collection. They, also, the Four Tops were uh, around a lot. I remember those records, the Dusty Springfield, that kind of real epic, um, very very well written sixties pop, which almost sounds like strange gothic music to me now. It's by no means uh, trite. I think sometimes when people hear the word pop, they switch off and think it's a, a lightweight thing. Uh, but certainly in the UK, um, pop has a real legacy of being, you know, really quite weird at times. Mm. And then when I um, I started buying my own records around about eight or nine, uh, T Rex, Mark Boland's T Rex were really the band that I fell in love with, and uh, you know, I spent all my money on T Rex records, and um, it's just a, a re- I was just very very fortunate because uh, I, uh, I kind of came out of a time when. Um, uh, the sort of bubblegum music or the music that was made for little kids was was really made by pretty interesting people playing playing a lot of guitars, whether that was the Sweet, you know, and bands like that, and David Bowie and Roxy Music, that what we call glam rock in the United Kingdom. Um, so that was really my musical kind of foundation, really, and um, I guess uh, you know the the things that really touch you and um, uh, make an impression on you uh, mm-hmm. never really go never really goes away so I guess what I do is, has got a lot of that in it kind of uh, tightly arranged and things that hopefully are um, I guess not too mellow yeah 
You formed the Smiths when you were just 18 years old. Uh, did you play in bands before that while you were in school? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I started playing playing in bands, proper bands, when I was 14. That was when I, I started playing in, in uh, venues and um, little shows. And uh, I was I was playing with people who were much older than me, like grown-ups, you know. Um, uh, and when I got to 15, I played in a couple of bands with older guys uh, who, you know, were really... Uh, against my my parents wishes you know and um looking back on it now i you know no, I, I don't blame them you know because i played with some of some of these guys i played with were really uh uh pretty uh pretty undesirables let's say but um it was all part of uh, an apprenticeship so uh i would go i would get on buses with no money no bus fare i would sneak on trains i did all of that I would walk for miles with an amp just to uh, get across to a neighborhood to to hook up with someone who maybe had a Telecaster or knew the chords to a, a, a Faces song or um, or um, someone who was just better than me, really. And um, I, I ended up being in a lot of bands. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I, I think, I regard kind of my, my sort of apprenticeship as starting really seriously at 15. And um, I left school very, very shortly after that uh, because uh, a band I was in took me to London um, to make some demos at uh, El, uh, Nick Lowe's house for um, Elvis Costello's manager. So, you know, I, I told the school, hey, I'm about to be in the big time and they wouldn't let me go. and. So I just decided to leave, and I, let's say uh, it was a, a mutual uh, mutual arrangement, and uh, they accept they accepted my resignation, but that was okay. So I just left school to be in bands, really. Mm. Uh, your early sounds were widely identified with Rickenbacker guitars, uh, but you also used Telecasters and acoustic guitars. Uh, how did you choose those instruments back then? Well, the the. Uh the choice of um, tracking a, a Rickenbacker with a Telecaster was actually um, uh, recommended to me by our then producer, John Porter. I was very fortunate in that the, uh, the, the early Smiths records were produced by John, um, and he had a, a, a great knowledge of uh, guitar techniques and tones and I was just like a sponge man and I just soaked up everything he had to teach me um, I already got into layering on my um, demos on a little four track um, that was the way I did things in my bedroom as a kid but um, things like tones and um, um, different pickup selections and different types of guitars was a a new world for me, really. And John had a few, um, he, he didn't have an enormous guitar collection, but for instance, the sound of this charming man is almost as much Telecaster as it is Rickenbacker. And it just enhanced the Rickenbacker. And um, I learned a lot of those techniques. And um, obviously, you know, those things stick with you. And, you know, I, that, that's all real. Um, I don't want to say basic stuff, but that's essential, essential things that 
that um, I um, I just keep with me to this day. So if I'm, you know, for instance, if I'm going to track a lead part, or if I'm going to track a riff or something, you know, I'll pick the right appropriate guitar to go with it. And I'm usually right. I, I don't usually have to, you know, experiment with too many different guitars to get the right tone because over the years I, I can identify what a guitar is going to do in whatever pickup position, I think. Uh, for instance, I know what a 6120 through a 60 twin or basement or deluxe is going to sound like in the neck position on top of my Jaguar, for example. Um, or I know what a, a clean 50s Les Paul is going to sound like in the middle position um, to double um, um, a, a Telecaster or something. And, and things with capos. So, to answer your question, it was really John Porter who facilitated the um, the um, choice of guitars in those early Smith records. I only had enough money for for the Rickenbacker, uh, and I had uh, a beat up Gibson 120 that I wrote um, a lot of the songs on mm -hmm. acoustic. Yep. Um. In 1987, after releasing a number of hugely successful records with the Smiths, uh, you began working with some other artists, Paul McCartney, Bernard Sumner, and the Pretenders, just to name a few. How did that affect, if in any way, uh, your approach to playing guitar? Um, well, when I... In the Pretenders, for example, that was a very short little tenure because they needed someone to stand in to play some concerts whilst, whilst we were opening for U2 on the Joshua Tree tour. They'd already been around the world a couple of times on that tour and Robbie McIntosh had, had left and um, they needed someone who could step in really quickly and I knew a lot of the first album from playing it in my bedroom, you know, uh, and um, so that got covered and I had to learn the rest of the set in about four days and then go out and play opening up for you 2 in the Olympic Stadium in San Francisco and Los Angeles and places like that so it was a pretty terrifying prospect but um, uh, you know it was great experience and I managed to do it but I think when I when I, when I think about uh, but the, the immediate period after the Smiths and uh, my uh, uh, my sort of journey as a guitar player it really all starts with the, the the band I was in with Matt Johnson they were my favourite band at the time so I've been very lucky all the way through my career in that when I've joined other existing bands I, I pretty much joined my favourite band at the time really um, whether it was Modest Mouse or the Cribs you know the, the band that I'm listening to and really rate the most highly at that time and then I, I get invited to join them so it's kind of an incredible thing really but Vivo was uh, I was really very very into and I really respected Matt and I was already a friend of Matt Johnson's but the thing from a guitar point of view was that he'd I had to reproduce some of his early stuff live that he'd just done he'd pulled out some really random guitars and would play uh, all kinds of stuff through wah-wahs and filters and forget how we'd done it and do it at three o'clock in the morning and 
sample stuff and, and, and I had to reproduce this kind of stuff and reproduce some weird keyboard part, parts on all of that and it was a real challenge and that stepped me up massively as a guitar player. I learned a play in a, a lot of more textures, backgroundy things, more esoteric style guitar uh, and reproducing things that were done on keyboards is, is really quite a, uh, a sort of interesting uh, uh, exercise. Um, I did that again recently when I worked on the Inception soundtrack with Hans Zimmer. That was just where I had to play a lot of things that were meant to be guitars that were played on keyboards. So that was uh, that was a, a real step up for me as a guitar player, and um, and then playing with electronic really more so uh, gave me um, more experience as a as a. Tech, uh, a kind of sonics guy really I think with electronic I learned so much more about technology and I learned a lot about arrangements and beats um, and and that's really helped me with with drummers and and my demos and bass lines and working on electronic music and then taking that uh, all of that uh, experience with uh working on grids and working with machines uh it's been really quite quite helpful with a band believe it or not i haven't thrown all of that out away uh you know i learned a hell of a lot i mean i don't want to get too technical but i learned about playing against the beat playing behind the beat and i learned a sort of um playing with carbatas from Kraftwerk taught me a lot about orchestration so you know I could talk a lot about all of this stuff because it, I've been doing it for a long time and uh, luckily I think every, uh, no experience has been wasted and everything's gone into you know, getting me where I am today. What a great thing to be able to make music with your favorite uh, artists. That's that's so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, for instance, you mentioned Modest Mouse. Uh, you did the We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank record and I, I believe that was the first uh, U.S. number one hit uh, hit album for them and for you. Is that correct? Yeah, um, I'm particularly proud of that because um, obviously getting a, a number one album in America is something that's you know if you're growing up as a, a an English kid, um, that's a, an amazing amazing achievement. It's an amazing achievement for anybody, but particularly as that music, a band like Modest Mouse, I felt when when we when I was in the band, when we weren't really the sort of band who would get to number one in the American charts, and uh, it did a lot for my idealism. You know, it, it wasn't just an ego trip. I, I actually, uh, it was, you know, I, I couldn't really believe it when uh, when I got the phone call saying that we'd got to number one, and um, I remember just thinking, well, music like this doesn't go to number one in the album charts. Um, so, it, you know, it uh, gave me a lot of faith in uh, in the um, alternative, uh, the American alternative record buyer putting a band like that to number one. And, um, yeah, sure, you know, in, particularly, you know, with all the success of the Smiths being so long before that, and it being such a long time after I've left the Smiths to then had the biggest kind of success of my career was 
was a, a you know a really uh, sweet uh, unexpected thing. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Christopher Nolan's 2010 film Inception. Um, as a composer, how do you approach guitars when creating a soundtrack? Is that process different from your other musical works? Oh yeah, absolutely. it's an absolutely different um, uh, discipline. I like it because it's it's nice to be working to an emotional remit. It's all about the emotion in a scene. Now, if someone hears that uh, and they think a film and emotion they normally put two and two together and come up with emotive music but it can be any emotion that's required in any scene if you think about it in a movie it can be dramatic it can be uh playful it can be glib it can be tense uh it can be uh you know stressful it doesn't have to be some poignant emotional sentimental thing um uh, and that's something I really enjoy. So when I've worked on movies, uh, I made the assumption that um, I kind of taught myself really that you should just match the emotion in the scene. So I don't sit there with a the guitar and kind of randomly try and do something that fits. Even I, um, I watch the scene and I sort of try and um, get a very clear notion of what the vibe is in that particular scene. Sometimes it's obvious if it's a car chase or if someone's been you know, chased down the street by a bunch of dudes with guns and, you know, you need that kind of manic manic tension. But whatever it is, I then try and clock that in my mind and then I pick up the guitar and then uh, and then try, and then try and make it. And, and that's something I really like, working to an emotional remit. And I think it's entirely right that the, really that the, it should be the director's call. I think that's the, really great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's good for art in general to be working within um, a remit. Uh, I think it's, it's good for creativity to have, uh, to have a strong direction. And, and put it this way, I think when you've got no limitations... And you you're, you can choose any colour in any palette um, under the sun. You, it, it, it's more difficult. So, uh, so I, you know, I say that because for, I think sometimes people have the assumption that, that a guitar player um, working on a soundtrack, uh, you could just be a bit more random and a little bit more abstract. I think maybe you know because what Neil Young did on um, on Dead Man, which which entirely worked, but uh, you know you can't just plug in through a fuzz pedal and stick a loaded delay on and hope that it works because it's you know esoteric. You have to be a little more specific than that. So also I'm very lucky because I you know I've been learning from the best person in in the uh, in the movie industry and the, the greatest composer around, and that's Hans Zimmer. So. Um, you know, it's great to still be learning and get opportunity to to work with with people who are so good. You know. Yeah, Johnny, I'd like to shift gears if if I may a little bit and talk sure. about, talk about gear. Um, you've used a lot of uh, Fender and other amplifiers throughout your career. You've also played uh, the role in JC One Twenty Jazz Chorus. Tell us about that. Well, the interesting thing is that. Um, a lot of musicians, people forget that. A lot of musicians, particularly young musicians, want to be of their time. 
and you want to be, uh, you don't want to be old-fashioned. You, um, when I started out, uh, I, I understood the value, the, the, uh, the attraction of old guitars. I already loved old guitars. Back then they weren't called vintage guitars, they were just called old guitars that no one really cared about, really, other than old guys. So, uh, there was only a few of us guys, certainly in the UK, playing, you know, beat up old Gibsons and, uh, you know, 50s guitars and stuff. But, uh, ironically, that was kind of quite fashionable at that time. You know, there was a few guys playing Gretches, and um, in fact, that, you know, the, my very first Smith gigs, I was playing a Gretch. Um, but but uh, I came out of a time when um, there was a lot of no-nos in in uh, guitar culture, you know, I guess it's gone down as being post-punk, but it was actually after post-punk, probably the the birth, of, I guess, the start of what has become become known as indie now, indie rock. And um, with that, uh, there was some musical politics, uh, and that was getting rid of throwing away the what everything that had happened in the previous generations of rock culture, which was a lot of distortion bluesy playing, extended solos, fast solos, a lot of effects. All of those things in my, in the culture that I came out of, were all considered passe and and, and somewhat uh, outdated. And that was fine. And there were a few guitar players who were, were therefore, you know, already quite accomplished who were older than me, I'm talking about people like John McGeoch, who was in Magazine and Susie and the Banshees, and um, one or two other guys, not too many, uh, and they were uh, trying to still, you know, and I was trying to still uh, have that love and bring forward guitar culture, not completely annihilate it and be anarchic, but be off my time. And um, so my sound a lot of my sound came out of that there was there was no not a lot of distortion there was certainly not extended solos there was not a lot of effects uh there's certainly not bluesy and um i was kind of talking to peter book about this because he was he was he, he was talking about me, he and i playing rickenbackers and you know i was saying well it wasn't all because i like the birds or or even brian jones it was because that guitar made me play a certain way and was very, very good for, you know, I didn't have a lot of sustain going, so I had to find some way of filling out the sound and a lot of that was by doing a lot of arpeggios and, and that, and I was also, I'm, I'm also a melody freak. So, you know, so I was, I was filling up a lot of space, finding melodies and playing very busy. And the Roland JC120 was a brand new innovation uh, it, it was uh, to use a Roland amp was very uh, um, um, unusual and and exciting, and a lot of people did it. I got, I got one as soon as I could afford one. I always wanted a, a Fender, like a lot of people of my generation. I wrongly assumed that uh, Johnny Thunders used a Fender Twin and um, Les Paul. And um, I think Steve Jones was responsible for that from the Pistols. So I had a Fender Twin, uh, but 
the next thing I got was a JC120, and those two amplifiers together were really quite amazing. And um, that was a big part of my sound, you know, um, that clean, chorusy sound. And, you know, uh, it, it's not really that much of a surprise to say that uh, your gear does dictate the way you play. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so I, I was fortunate. And, and the... the the interesting thing is that now, many, many, many years later, there are kids do ask me about about playing the JC120. They like that sound, and um, you go through all of these changes that you think are progress in equipment, and you try all new gear, all new gear. Now, I've I've always used a Fender Deluxe Reverb from the minute I first got one. I've, I just I've always used that same amp in the studio as well as others I've never but uh, I mean that to me is an amazing and perfect sound uh, and it's my main thing but you t almost take for granted things that come out new at the time and then years later it, you realise that they, there's a certain sound involved in um, in some equipment that you just can't really reproduced entirely in a pedal or in a plug-in or uh you know or even you know uh reissues and um it, it you know maybe it's one of the things about getting old and being around a little longer but um uh i've had quite a few people really uh geeking out over over the one jc120 that's great I understand that you have a Boss GT100 amp effects processor. How are you using yeah. that? Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, uh, I, when I was in the, the uh, as I said, I had to uh, duplicate a lot of textures and, and different sounds uh, from song to song and within song to song live. So I had a big rack, and that was a really exciting thing for me. Not not all guitar players want to go there, but at that time, it was great. And I realized then, you know, that I could produce with my feet. That's the way I looked at it. And um, the idea of being able to go from one part of a song to another with a completely different kind of sound, and you know, or even if even just changing reverb sizes and delay times and all of that, I mean, it really set my imagination on fire. And um, uh, so oh, so over the years, uh, you know, I wanted to scale down, I, didn't, I wanted to scale down the rack and not take a big rack out with me because I'm just not really a rack person, but I love what, as I say, what that kind of facilitates. Um, and multiprocessors were really, uh, you know, uh, not they were they were really in their infancy in the, I guess late eighties, uh, and um, and and the untried technology and and they weren't, weren't too great tonally. The the, the the things they could do were kind of fun, but it really was at the uh, at the expense of of a decent tone. But it's all right. It's all early days. But I kept my eye on processors, and I, and I tried multiprocessors. And like a lot of guitar players, I found them, you know, not not to be kind of as uh, as as cool as 
as the real thing. Uh, and then when the GT5 came out, I happened to be um, going out with, with the healers, the band I had in the early 2000s, and um, we, they, they were really useful for me, particularly as I'm in the position of having to reproduce a lot of different sounds uh, and being, my audience expect me to have sound like my records. But I don't, as a singer, I don't want to be looking down at my feet every, you know, 16 bars or every time I go into a chorus or a verse. I don't want to be hitting a few different pedals. So uh, the GT5 did two things for me. It, was, it, it made it so that I could, you know, obviously change these sounds and reproduce some of the things that were going on in my records, but without having to, you know, just that, just that one, hitting one pedal, I still wasn't entirely uh, uh, there with, with the, the sound of it, but I got there, I did a lot of interesting things and, you know, being able to use ring modulation, for example, or dial in um, very precise delays and all of that was for someone like me was really was really fun um but i was working on it and working on it and then i heard about the gt100 coming out i, I tried the gt10 and to be frank i just didn't like the look of it at all i just couldn't really be dealing with it it, it didn't seem like uh my kind of thing but the gt100 was a, it was a different matter and I, it surprises some guitar players that I use it live, but I, I set up what I call, say, my analog boards through my studio setup, and then I programmed and copied all of the things that I was doing with that analog board into the GT100, and I'm pretty sure that it would pass the blindfold test to absolutely anybody, including me, because I've got pretty pretty good at programming those things. And to get very specific about it, because I'm singing, and I think it's absolutely crucial that the audience don't watch a guitar player singing. I think they need to see uh, a singer playing great guitar. There's a difference. I think when you go see a show, particularly the kind of music I do, if I'm fronting my band, the singer has to be engaging the, which is me, needs to be engaging the audience and singing the song. And, you know, I just have to then do what's expected of me as a guitar player, which is great, uh, fun. So the GT100 has this two control, external control pedal, pedal functions. And I have those two at my feet, and I just go up and down all those patches and apply a certain part of my brain. And really, a lot of my rehearsal is learning up two with the right, down one with the left, up one right, in the middle of that verse, go up two there, then uh, here comes the solo. And I'm just going up and down often with, with my two feet by the mic stand and reproducing pretty much faithfully the sound of my boutique and old funky old pedals. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's 
a fantastic thing. And, you know, uh, as I said, for me, it's producing with your feet. Yep. And it's like having, it's like having a mix. It's like having a studio at your feet. Yep. And if you if you've got the uh, the you know the the obsessive or or uh, the patience kind of um, uh, to um, to get into really programming that stuff, man, you can have a lot of fun doing it, and and it can really enhance your creativity too. So I, I really like that. I like that when I get into my fourth number of the set, I just go into it and it sounds like the record. And then when I get into the second verse, it sounds like the record. And then I just like hit a button and I can do all of that without having a, to have like three guys load a, a, a rack in. And I can just also, when I go and guest with people, I just throw it in, throw it in the back seat of my car and I turn up with this studio at my feet. That's That's awesome, yeah. Besides being practical in those ways, the multi effects are very mobile, as you as you say. Um, yeah, well, I like that. I mean, you can you can get there are more sort of high end range ones. Um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that they sound better. If they did, I'd be using one. Uh, and um, you know, also we're in you know we're 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 in times now where when you travel around, uh, a lot of musicians. Um, you know, uh, need to be able to take a lot of stuff with them um, without, you know, uh, mm -hmm. freighting stuff. And you know, we, when we fly around Europe, we try and I try and do it as guerrilla guerrilla style as possible. So I just throw those things in pedal cases and stick them in the hold on the plane. It's, it's the way I like to do it. I think that's the modern way. I think it's the way it should be done. Well, Johnny, I, I have one last question for you. Um, okay, what's next? What's next for you? Well, I'm working on a... I'm going to be working on a soundtrack uh, for a film that's going to come out next year. And um, and then I, and I'm working on the next the next record with my band. So, yeah, it's a solo record, but I've got, you know, but, well, it's a Johnny Marr record, but I have my band now and um, I have the same musicians. And, you know, that I've just come off stage in Dundee in Scotland. Uh, and so we're you know we're in that great situation where i'm writing and we're we're a touring band so i want to take advantage of that and make the record whilst we're a touring band not go away and you know walk around you know sat under trees too long thinking about it i just want to take the the vibe of the the live show into the studio so between putting out the next my next record and 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 some soundtrack stuff. That's plenty to, for me to be getting on with. Uh, I, maybe I'll, maybe I'll surprise people and do the expected thing instead of my usual, which is taking some crazy left turn. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. That's all right, Gary. Yeah, thanks for your questions. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks again. All right, man. Hey, this is Paul Hansen again. Just want to say thanks again to Johnny Marr for taking time out of his busy schedule and talking to us. Also, thanks to my good friend Gary Lanier for hosting the show. And thank you for using Cool Boss Gear. And remember, you can find out anything you want about Boss Effects, tuners, digital recorders, you name it, at BossUS.com. 
See you later. 